0: The following message is by dr cliff McManus, pastor teacher at creekside bible church located in cupertino california we are at a nexus point or a pivotal point in the ministry of jesus christ but also in the gospel of luke and we 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 alluded to this a couple weeks ago where after two plus years of ministry to the masses to the general crowd for the most part going from city to city Proclaiming a general message of repent for the kingdom is at hand, Jesus stops, pivots, makes a revelation to his apostles that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and and unveiled to them formally for the first time in a way he'd never done before. We just saw it up north in Caesarea Philippi where he told them that, yes, I am the Christ, but I, I came for a specific message or reason, and that was to go to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to suffer, to be arrested, and to die, to be killed. And to rise again. And remember how that whoosh, went over the head of the apostles. That was before the transfiguration. Then there was the transfiguration just a week later. And then he's coming down the hill. Meets his apost- and then he says the same thing. We're going to Jerusalem. I am going to die. I will be delivered over to death. And then Luke makes that statement again. That the apostles they didn't understand what he was saying. And we're going to see that a couple more times in the Gospel of Luke. Where Jesus specifically says we are going to Jerusalem. And I'm going there to die. And then Luke says, but the apostles, they didn't understand it. As a matter of fact, God the Father blinded them or veiled them from understanding the full significance and the implications of what that meant. So uh, the apostles, they they heard Jesus say that, something about betrayal, something about arrested, something about death. They're not quite sure what that means. They have questions in their mind. They don't have the correct interpretation. That's actually going to play into their ignorance of the passage we look at today. So let's go ahead and pick it up, Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to be focusing in on verses 49 to 56, but we'll pick up the context uh, a couple of verses before that. Keep in mind this is two plus years into Jesus' ministry. Most of that was spent preaching in all these Galilean towns. He's covered them all. Uh, now he has revealed to his apostles that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he came to die, and now he's got his sights on the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple is. He revealed His glory through the transfiguration to a select group of three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, who were privileged many times with this privy information. They're coming down from the mountain, and they're going to go back to Galilee to check in, maybe grab all their stuff as they embark for the next six months on a long journey headed slowly back to Jerusalem where Christ will give His life and die as the Savior of the world. That's the context. We saw last week that as they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John had that insider information of Jesus literally unveiled in all of his majestic glory. And they got to see it. And he said, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell your uh, nine buddies, the other apostles, until I have risen again. And again, they didn't know what, you've risen again. They were debating about what does that mean? So maybe they kept the secret, maybe they didn't. And they're going down the hill, and then they meet massive crowds as they're heading back from Caesarea Philippi, going about 40 miles back to Galilee, where headquarters is. And as always, the crowds figure out, here comes Jesus. And they begin to amass and crowd around him and crush in on him. But he's deliberate in his new focus and new purpose for the next six months. The new purpose is, I'm going to invest much more time in my 12 apostles. I need to prepare them because they're going to be the leaders of the first church. They're going to lay the foundation. That's where I need to concentrate all of my energies for the most part. He will uh, talk to the crowds here and there, but the focus is always on the apostles. So we're going to see that from chapter 9 through the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Another thing that Luke covers from chapter 9 through the end of the book is just about every chapter you have the Pharisees are a topic of discussion. As a matter of fact, they're a topic of opposition. They are pestering Jesus every step of the way. They are opposing Him privately and publicly, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are significant because if you were a Jew, born and raised in Galilee or Judea, raised in the synagogue, a religious person, believed in God, believed in the Hebrew Scriptures, as all 12 apostles had done, who was the elite religious Leaders that we look up to, that we admire, that we want to uh, follow their example and be like them and be trained by them and listen to their teaching and they interpret everything for us and they explain what the temple is and what the Old Testament law is and how we are to view God and how we're supposed to practice our life and they run the synagogues and their entire worldview dominates everything that we aspire to as religious people. That was the upbringing of the 12 apostles, completely smothered as they saw it through the interpretation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. They, they had a monopoly on Jewish religion. Unfortunately, the Pharisees, they were phonies. They were filled with pride. They had virtually the Old Testament memorized in a wrong interpretation of it because they didn't have a heart change to go along with it, so they were legalists. The letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. They gave my, more priority to the traditions of men as opposed to the living Word of God and Scripture. They are the ones that dominated Jewish religion. This is how these apostles were trained and raised. And if they're in their 20s or early 30s, this has been their training for 20 to 30 years. So, Jesus comes along, who is completely different than the Pharisees, as far as the apostles are concerned, completely unprecedented. Where did He get this information? Where does He think He gets this authority? He is not like the Pharisees and everybody else. The crowds and the leadership itself, the Pharisees and Sadducees had the same observation. Jesus, he is totally different. Calls himself rabbi, he's a Jew, claims to know the Old Testament, claims even more than that, claims to be the Messiah, the son of God. Who is this man? And he backs it up with miracles, miracles they'd never seen before. He validates what he says to be true. He is the Messiah. So there's this growing resistance, jealousy, hostility from the leadership that has been entrenched In Israel, all these years, pitted against the rising popularity of Jesus, the Messiah. And so that's why Luke traces this theme of hostility that is rising more and more throughout his gospel through the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders who literally hate Jesus Christ. And actually, by this time, they have been plotting of how to get rid of him and kill him. That plot has been uh, under wraps for over a year, almost from the very beginning of his ministry, really, when he cleansed the temple. And they've been trying to find a place to take him out ever since. Hopefully in a time when it won't be exposed and seen by the masses and the crowds and all these people who are following him. So that's just a big picture of Luke and where we are in the ministry of Jesus Christ at this point. Um, And now, like I said, he's got his face towards Jerusalem and he's going to focus on his apostles and they have many lessons to learn. So let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 9 and we'll pick up at verse 46 and just read down. verse 56, they're coming down from the Mount, uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Then Jesus does a miracle and casts out a demon. Verse 43 says, everybody was absolutely amazed at the greatness of God and the miracle that Jesus had just done. Jesus reminds his disciples that he's going to die. Verse 44, this is the second time in a week where Jesus tells his 12 apostles, I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. We're going to Jerusalem. I will be delivered over to the enemies. They will kill me, the Messiah, your master, your teacher, the one who's leading you. And the 12 apostles, they were committed to Jesus at this point. They are with him 24-7. They're following his lead every step of the way. They call him master willingly. And then he says, "Uh, I'm going to die. And you would think because we know more. That if Jesus said that, he's going to die. This is preoccupying all of his thoughts, his mission. He's laser focused. You would think that the 12 apostles, his best friends, John the apostle, who's literally a blood relative of Jesus, James and John, when they heard that, oh, Jesus is going to die, they would have sympathy. And that that would be dominating their thoughts. And their thoughts would be all on him and not on themselves. But that isn't the case. That's why this contrast is so powerful for us as a reminder of how pathetic we can be as sinners, how sinful and self-centered we can be, utterly disregarding those around us with greater needs than our own, let alone the perfect, sinless Jesus the Savior. So he's just revealed he's going to be murdered in the very next verse, First. 46 says, and an argument started around them. We saw this last week. The apostles started arguing and bickering with one another as they're walking down the road heading to headquarters in Galilee. Jesus is probably ahead. He hears the 12 of them behind him. He can hear them squabbling like crybaby little children, bickering over something, and he heard it. And what they were talking about is they were debating and arguing about who would be the greatest among them in the kingdom. And it's revealed later that James and John specifically wanted to be on the right hand of Jesus and the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. Vice regents, closest to the king, utterly, completely selfish, the, the epitome of the opposite of humility. And that's what this whole lesson is about. All the way to 46, Jesus is now giving these lessons, trying to drill it home on, boy, you guys aren't ready to be church leaders yet. You're not ready to... I can't leave planet Earth yet because you're supposed to represent me, my teaching, my methods, and my character. You're not there yet. What did they need? They needed a huge, massive lesson on humility because they they have had some amazing privileges up to this point. So we talked about that last week where he, uh, verse 47, but Jesus knowing what they were thinking, he knew their hearts in this instance uh, and that sin of pride was coming out of their heart. He took a child and stood the child by his side, and then we know from the other two Gospels that he eventually put the child in his lap. So think toddler. Think three-year-old. Think four-year-old when you see that uh, word there where it says he took a child. This one is not a teenager. And he uses the the child, the toddler, as a visual aid. And he said to his 12 macho, strong, fishermen, arrogant, prideful, self-centered apostles. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. We didn't get to camp out a whole lot on verse 48, so I just wanted to make a couple of notes there. The key verb there, receive. Receive, 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 receive. Four times. What is verse 48 about? Receiving. What does that mean? Welcoming. Welcoming. Not being exclusive, not being territorial, not being sectarian, not being partisan, open to everybody, open arms to everybody, seeing everybody the same, having the same mindset towards everybody. Philippians chapter 2. If you're really a Christian, if Christ has saved your life, if you have been the Spirit of God living in you, then have the same love towards one another. You love every Christian believer the same. You're welcoming, open arms. So you're not partial, you're not prejudiced, you're not exclusive, you're not sectarian, you're not cliquish. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like this child. That's why he's using the child. The child is not significant. The child doesn't sit at the prominent place at the table or in the king's palace. Children are sometimes a nuisance. They have nothing to offer. They require 100% attention to be cared for and taken care of. You don't gain any significance by association when you say, oh, I know this (laughs) three-year-old. It just doesn't happen. That's Jesus' point here. Except, so they are being exclusive by telling Jesus, oh, which one of us is going to be the greatest? They're being exclusive. They're being myopic. Their, Their vision is like this. Jesus, who do you like best is what they're doing. And Jesus is saying, no, I love everybody. Every person who is a believer is a child in the family of God. And Jesus and the Father love every Christian the same. Do we? Do we? We need to. If you're a pastor or an elder or leader in the church, you should because that's what the Bible teaches. But that's your role. If you're a pastor, an elder, and shepherd in the church, you have to love everybody the same. You do. Pastor Cliff, uh, how do you tolerate and love everybody the same? Well, I have to. It's my job, literally. Literally. That's what God has called a shepherd to do. Here, Mr. Shepherd, here's your 105 sheep. Care for them all. Lead all of them. Protect all of them. Give your life for every single one of them. Love them all the same. Treat them all the same. And that's loving them uh, as God would love them. And so not only should pastors and elders, but every Christian is called to do the same. That's what Jesus is trying to say. This is what you need. When you become certified, official, legitimate, bona fide... Uh, qualified church leaders to plant the church coming up in Pentecost, men. This is the attitude you need to have towards people, towards sinners, and towards the saints, especially towards believers. Love all people, but especially the household of God. It starts in the church. This is what he's getting at. There is no room for exclusivity, cliques, territorialism in the church. You receive this child this child who has nothing to offer. This child who isn't great. This child who is the least in rank. Open your arms. That's how you accept every person in the family of God. So four times he uses this word. This is Jesus is being dogmatic, black and white, to his apostles. You need to receive, receive, receive. You need to welcome. You need to welcome. You need to, you need to be welcoming, not exclusive. Don't exclude anybody who is legitimately a part of the family of God. Now, I emphasize that because that's why John asked the question that he does in verse 49. It's amazing how many commentators i read, they don't even connect 48 and 49 in John's question. They just think John's question is blurted out of context. There's no connection whatsoever with the context, not related to verse 48. Verse 49 flows out of verse 48, and we're going to see that. Now I'm just going to read 49 to 56, now that we have the background for the message of today, which uh, I talked about. The title of the sermon is about the patience of Jesus, It's more than that, but that is an emphasis here. Jesus is patient. God is patient. That's one of his attributes and characteristics. It's a communicable attribute, meaning that God made us in his image, and we also can be patient like God. But boy, isn't that hard, being patient? It is a fruit of the Spirit. We can't do it on our own, being patient. But here we see the beauty of Christ in his patience toward his disciples who are short-sighted, self-centered, totally sinful. It's like they're not even listening to what he's saying. He just got finished saying, let this sink into your ears. And then he said something and they didn't let it sink in their ears. And he doesn't lash out. He rebukes them. He gently reminds them. He gives words of wisdom. But you see his, his patience modeled like nobody else can model it. as He's patient with the apostles. And he is going to see, and that patience is going to pay off because you're going to see a transformation in these guys and their attitudes. From here in Luke chapter 9, and then when you flip over to the book of Acts when the church begins, and like Peter, James, John, they are different men. They are different men first and foremost, not in the content that they learn from Jesus, but in their character. Their temperament, their sensibilities, their virtues, their ability to walk in the Spirit, to have supernatural patience, to stand in front of those who want to kill them and to speak courageously and patiently and without vengeance on behalf of their Christ. Those are new men. So Jesus knows what He's doing. He's teaching them patience. Let's read verse 49 to 56 after He uses this illustration of the children. So after Jesus' illustration of this toddler that He's holding... Receive them all. Then John the apostle answered Jesus and said, Master, Rabbi, we, the apostles, saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to John, do not hinder him for he who is not against you is for you. Then verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. So they head out. They leave Capernaum. They leave headquarters. They got all their stuff and they're going to go down to Jerusalem and to get there, he's going to take the shortcut through Samaria, which not every Jew did. The Pharisees probably wouldn't do that because they thought the Samaritans were dirty. Jesus had no problem because he knew God the Father The Son and the Holy Spirit made every human being in the image of God. Every human being born is a candidate for the grace of God based on the gospel. So Jesus sends messengers on ahead of him. He's probably with his entourage. We saw that in Luke 8. He's got the 12 apostles. He's got their associates. Maybe Peter has his wife for all we know with him and children if he had them. He's got uh, females with him who are his servants taking care of him. So he's got a crowd. And if it's a several days journey, as he goes through Samaria, he has to make accommodations for himself and all of his people. He's taking care of them. He's providing on their behalf. So he's planning ahead. That's why he sends messengers ahead of himself. And they went and they. So his messengers go into a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus. But they did not receive him. They did not welcome Jesus. Why? Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. So, the messengers come back. They brief Jesus. uh, Jesus, uh, they don't want you coming through this town. So, when Jesus' disciples, and probably particularly, yeah, his apostles, James and John, saw this or heard about it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans? At least they asked permission. Verse 55, and Jesus turned, so... They're walking along, they're trudging along. Jesus is leading the way. There's a big crowd of people behind him, all the apostles, whatever. And then James and John just kind of shout out, Jesus, should we consume them with fire? And then Jesus stops, turns. And that was, that, that was dramatic. You can just see Jesus stop everything, hold it, not again. John, uh, John, I just talked to you in verse 49. Verse 54. Verse 55, but Jesus turned and he rebuked them and then said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, to judge, to condemn, but rather to save them. And they went on to another village. Let's go ahead and look at this. This really just is a continuation of Jesus teaching his apostles, the future church leaders, about pride and humility. And to be a church leader, to be a shepherd, you have those qualifications we talked about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, about 20 plus qualifications there. Many of those are character qualifications. And that's what this is. This Again, this is a lesson on character. Okay, we've been preaching, we've had your theology, uh, but now we need a, a serious lesson about character. So, Jesus is giving them a character lesson about humility, what it is, pride, what it is. And in addition to that is today we see, you know what else we need a message on or a lesson on, guys, regarding character? If you're going to be spiritual shepherds, you need a a lesson on mercy, which goes hand in hand with patience. You can't have mercy without patience. They go together. That's why the title of the sermon is Jesus And patience, or Jesus shows supernatural patience, and this is a lesson He's intending to give His apostles. So, uh, just here's three more points on the nature of biblical humility, or the opposite of is here's what here's how destructive pride is. What does pride do? Uh, Pride brings partiality. That's verse 48. Pride brings partiality, that exclusive attitude. You're in the holy huddle over here. You don't welcome everybody. You don't receive everybody. you got cliques in the church. Aren't you glad we don't have cliques in our church? Wait, why are people laughing? Anyway, we are all susceptible to that. And Jesus said, no, you can't have that. And if you have a clique in a church, however it's manifest, or in a church split, whenever you've ever heard of a church split, they happen all the time, unfortunately. Whenever you have a church split guaranteed, if you were to take your finger and find the pulse, the epicenter, the nexus of where that split originated from, it's going to come down to either a small group of individuals or maybe one individual. And that one individual or small group of individuals' main problem is pride. They are being exclusive. They are being sectarian. They are not being receiving. They are not welcoming. That is the origin and the problem with a church split. Every single time. Remember we said that the sin of pride was the devil's sin? According to Scripture, the first sin ever committed, if it was Satan who committed that first sin, it was all about pride. And every other human sin flows from the fertile soil of pride that is in the soil of the heart. Trace it back because it is categorically self-centered. It's all about you. It's all about me. Get our eyes off the right focus. So what does pride do? Pride creates partiality. Being partial, being biased, being prejudiced, being bigoted, being small-minded, not being welcoming. That's what it means. That's what pride does. What else does pride do? Uh, 49, this is, these are completely related. 49 and 50, pride creates an exclusive attitude. So exclusivity. So you've got partiality and exclusivity. You don't want people to be in your group that aren't like you or that don't meet your standard. So you're partial, you're exclusive. And then finally, 51 to 56, what does pride do? Pride actually uh, creates hostility. If you have pride, you don't have patience with other people you can develop actually an unforgiving, vindictive spirit. That's at the heart of pride. You, you like to emphasize that one of God's attributes is justice and wrath and lack the balance. And we see that clearly here. So let's go ahead and look at this, uh, these manifestations of pride that Jesus is trying to just shatter in his apostles who will represent him. And by the way, the lesson takes, except for Judas, we know, because... He's not born again at this point. He's not clean. He never was. He won't get saved. He never has been saved. He didn't get saved and lose his salvation. He was of the devil from the very beginning. God knew that. Jesus knows that. That's revealed to him by the Father. That was in God's plan. It was prophesied in the Old Testament in the Psalms and in Zechariah ahead of time that one of Jesus' closest friends would betray him. It's part of God's plan. And yet, Judas has his own volition. He's responsible for the decisions that he makes and he is accountable for the decisions that he makes. Even though this was prophesied years ago and centuries before. But the other 11, they get the lesson. They are learning. They are taking it in. They are growing. They are maturing. That is encouraging for us, isn't it? We are all in process. We are all growing. If you are a Christian, that is the promise of Hebrews. If you are a Christian, you are going to grow whether you like it or not. That is the theme of Hebrews chapter 12. Because if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. And if God has to give you spiritual spanking and me one, he will, and he'll keep doing it. And you will be sanctified. (laughs) That's supposed to be good news. So let's go ahead and look at this. Um, The partiality that comes from pride, verse 48. Like I said, the key word there is receive. You need to be welcoming, welcoming, welcoming. You need to receive. And then at the beginning of verse 48, uh, Jesus said to them, whoever receives or welcomes this child. Here's a key phrase. In my name. In my name. So we don't just welcome and receive anybody. We don't welcome and receive factious, unrepentant people. Titus 3 tells us that. We reject a factious man after a second and third warning. So we don't receive unrepentant people who have been warned. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Who you need to welcome are people who come in my name, meaning they're true believers, they're part of the family of God. It's Thanksgiving. The whole family's coming over. You open the door. There's a family member. You don't shut the door in their face just because you don't like that family member. You open the it's his family. Let him in. So this is what Jesus is getting at. In my name. So here's the 12 apostles in there. Wait, okay, Jesus is saying, new lesson. We need to receive and welcome anybody who comes in the name of Jesus. So, if anybody comes along and says, "Uh, I do this in the name of Jesus, I say this in the name of Jesus, I come in the name of Jesus, then we are not to despise them, cut them out, but we are to welcome them in. Well, lo and behold, that recently happened to the apostles. They're out doing their thing, they got their gig, Uh, they were commissioned with supernatural power from on high, Luke chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus gave them authority to heal, to preach, to cast out demons, maybe even raise the dead. So those 12 apostles went out and they did it. Short-term trip, come back, they did all these miracles. And maybe along the way they encountered somebody. We know that they did. So Jesus, we're supposed to accept everybody in your name? And that prompts the question from John in verse 49. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons. Here it is, in your name. Notice verse 49, 48. He said, receive everybody who comes in my name. And John the Apostle says, oh, we just saw somebody who came in your name. It was a stranger. We didn't know him. He didn't have a membership card. He wasn't qualified as far as we know. And yet he said he was in your name, Jesus. So we're supposed to welcome that guy? That's John's question. Master, we saw someone. Not only was it a stranger who said, I come in Jesus' name. Look what this stranger was doing. He's a nameless guy. We saw someone, we, the Apostles, He was casting out demons in your name. By the way, it doesn't say, He was trying to cast out demons in your name, and it wasn't working. That did happen in the book of Acts, where somebody was trying to buy the Holy Spirit with money, Simon, Simon simony, and to work miracles with the Holy Spirit without being a believer or ordained, sanctioned by God. Well, this guy, this nameless guy, who wasn't one of the 12 apostles, that they didn't even know, was going around in the name of Jesus and successfully casting out demons out of people. Who is this guy? We have no idea. He is in heaven. Love to meet this guy. Where'd he come from? I have no idea. But we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And John is kind of fessing up here. Wow, this guy came in your name, he was doing miracles. Uh, he was successful, and <laughs> we as the apostles, there was 11, 12 of us and one of him, and we tried to take him down and shut down his itinerant ministry. We tried, couldn't, is the implication. We tried to prevent him from casting out demons. Tried to stop him. Why? Because they were being exclusive. Well, we're the 12. We're the ones that have been commissioned. We have the membership card. Jesus gave us authority. He's taken away attention from us. He's stealing our clients' We got the corner on the truth. I mean, these are all attitudes that we all have at times, right? Wrong mindset. His reason is pathetic. We tried to prevent and shut this guy down. Why? Because he does not follow along with us. That's, that's a wrong motive. As opposed to, he doesn't follow along with you, Jesus. That would have been the right answer. He doesn't follow you, Jesus. He mocks you, Jesus. He undermines you, Jesus. Then yeah, watch out for that guy. But no, he doesn't follow us. Well, you're not the savior, John. I am. You got a territorial, sectarian, partisan, short-sighted, myopic attitude. That is wrong. Verse fifty, and so that's why Jesus tells him the truth. It's a mild rebuke, uh, but Jesus said to him, uh, "Do not hinder." Him. In other words, stop it. Let him go. Stop trying to prevent him. So Jesus sanctions this ministry of this unnamed guy. For he who is not against you is for you. He's on your team. Friendly fire. Why are you trying to shut down what I'm trying to do through other people? We have that problem today in the church, don't we? We've had that problem in the church for 2,000 years. This has always been a problem. But here's the the proverb or the maxim that Jesus gives is, John, you need to understand this guy is from me. He came in my name. It was legitimate. I actually gave him authority to do this miracle even though you didn't know about it. By the way, John, you don't have to know everything the master knows. I'm in charge. It's my church. I'm the savior of the world. I'm sovereign, not you. Trust me. Worry about you. Be responsible for what I've given you to do. Don't focus on other people. What are you called to do? You're responsible for what you do, not other people. A lot of good practical lessons here for Christian ministry and also the Christian life. And this guy's on our team. For he who is not against you, John, he is for you. He's for you. He's not against you. It's like here at our church, Creekside Bible Church. Do we have a corner on the truth? Not. Should we look down our nose at other churches in the neighborhood and around Northern California that are actually doing ministry, that are faithful to the gospel, that are being used by God, that are sanctioned by God, that are propagating the gospel and seeing people saved and they love the Word and they love Jesus? Should we look down our nose at them exclusively and say, no, we we do it right and we're the only ones that do it right. we got a corner on the truth. Here, Creekside Bible Church. No. (laughs) No, this is one outpost of many outposts for the kingdom of God all over this world. We should be rejoicing. We're in the minority. We're in the super minority. We should be rejoicing of every satellite Christian church we have around the world. They are in our family, they're on our side. Praise God. That's what Jesus is getting at here. For he who is not against you is for you. So don't be exclusive, don't be competitive. Don't be territorial about Christian ministry. You see somebody having success in ministry on the internet. Don't get jealous. We're not competing. It's all about Christ, right? His gospel, he's the head of the church. By the way, this is a compliment to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. For he who is not against you is for you. Because in chapter 12 he said, um, the compliment or the converse when he said... He who is not with me is against me. So what's the difference between those two statements? He who is not with me is against me versus for he who is not against you is for you. Or Mark 9.40 says, he who is not against us is for us. So what's the difference between those two statements? Nothing really. Those are black and white categorical statements. And they, they are communicating the same truth. And what's the same, the, the same truth Jesus is getting at? Well, there is no middle ground. When it comes to Jesus there is no middle ground. It's categorical. It is dogmatic. It is black and white. You are either for Jesus Christ or against Him. It's not somewhere in the middle. This is not wishy-washy. And Jesus did this. He spoke truth. Many of Jesus' statements are categorical, definitive, clear. I I, I appreciate that about the greatest teacher there ever was, Jesus. When He was categorically, dogmatically clear on issues that matter that needed to be stated accordingly. In a, in a world and in a day where truth is awash, even unfortunately from preachers and Bible teachers where they're wishy-washy and trying to figure, wait, what did he say? Or I'm reading a book, wait, I've read four pages, I don't know what this guy actually is saying. Wait, what does he believe? And it's ambiguous, yet Jesus is categorical. And this is why he was uh, an excellent teacher, the master teacher, but also this is why he attracted those who loved God and repelled those who hated God's truth, right? What does truth do? Truth divides. Just speak the truth and you will create division. But that's how it works. And that's what these statements mean. This is categorical. Jesus said many important things categorically. I am the way, the way, definite article. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. That is dogmatic. That is black and white. That is categorical. That is exclusive. That is conditional. That is the truth. Did it make people mad? Yes. But Jesus was committed to speaking the truth because he was incarnate truth. Or. Believe in the Son, and you shall receive life. Reject the Son, and the wrath of God abides on you. There is no middle ground. John 3 36. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, 35 and following that startling statement where Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. I came to bring division even within individual households. Because of who I am and my truth. To pit a father against a son. A mother against a daughter. A mother-in-law against a son-in-law. I came to bring division. What's he talking about? The truth. Categorical, black and white, universal, binding, spiritual truth. It's what the world needs. That's how Jesus spoke. Read the four gospels. You'll just see it time and time again. And that's why you see the growing hostility and opposition to Jesus Christ. Why they wanted to shut him up. Because he speaks the truth. But Jesus said, don't fear it, welcome it. Welcome the truth, and you'll be saved. Welcome the truth, and it will liberate you. Know the truth, and it will set you free. This is good news. So he's trying to teach them about not being exclusive, but to be welcome. Let's look at verses 51 to 56. The lesson here is, boy, da- pride is dangerous. Uh, if you don't guard it, prevent, and protect against it, it'll get the best of you. And the fruits of it are devastating, they can actually be very dangerous. And I I use the word hostility here, hostility. Verse 51, so when the days were approaching or about to be fulfilled, it's a technical word meaning the time has come. Jesus kept saying, my time is not yet at hand, my time is not yet at hand. It is at hand now. He's got six months to go. He knows it because the next Passover he's going to die on the night of the Passover. This is God's plan. When the days were approaching for His ascension, for His being received up, He just talked about how it's time for me to die. That's the bad news. The good news is it's time for me to rise again and ascend back to the Father. That is the good news. And that is the validation that He is the Lord, the Savior of the world. So when the days were approaching for His ascension, going back to heaven, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set His face towards Jerusalem. He was fixed on Jerusalem. He will not deviate from that. He knows the will of God. He knows the plan. No one will detract Him from that plan, not even Satan who tried. So that's what we see in the next, really through the remainder of the book of Luke, His slow march to Jerusalem to the cross. And so we read there verse 52, and He sent messengers ahead of Him into Samaria. So He's been ministering up in north, that's Galilee, that's like a country or region actually. And then there's Samaria in the middle and below Samaria is Judah or Judea, and that's the capital. And that's where the temple is. And that's where the city of Jerusalem is. And that's headquarters. And all the main, especially the three main feasts throughout the year at Israel, everybody comes down to Jerusalem to celebrate. And uh, for an entire week during those feast weeks, Jerusalem is bustling with people over, Josephus reported, over a million or two million people maybe who congregated during those feast days. That's going to be happening shortly for Jesus at the time of the Passover. But to get to Jerusalem. You could go uh, across the river, the Jordan River, to the east side and then bypass Samaria and then come back into Judah. And a lot of purist Jews, Pharisees, Jewish leaders who despised Samaritans who were a different kind of people than the Jews – they didn't want to go into their land and get dirty. Uh, they would bypass that many times. Uh, but Jesus, no, he had no problem. He would go through Samaria. We saw that in John chapter 4. He went through Samaria and his apostles are like, whoa, what are you doing? Then they go to the grocery store and Jesus is there at the well and he meets this Samaritan woman who's an adulteress and a Samaritan. Two strikes against her. Oh, and she's a female by the way. And the apostles come back, whoa, what are you, why are you talking to her? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus gives her the truth, gives her the gospel, I believe saved her soul. Yeah. And, she, and then I think she went to evangelism Saturday the next week. <laughs> and the whole town heard the gospel. So Jesus loved sinners, and that was an example. So he wasn't afraid of the Samaritans. Um, and by the way, Samar- the Samaritans, who were they? Well, historically, in about 700 B.C., you yeah, had the nation of Israel... And then Assyria attacked, and they took a northern part of Israel and conquered it, the Assyrians. And then the Assyrian king or emperor, he purposely brought in a whole bunch of pagans and infiltrated uh, and had the Jews intermarry and created basically a Mongol race of people that were part Jewish and part pagan. But they were still somewhat religious, and they believed in some of the Old Testament, and they became the Samaritan people. So they weren't purebred Jews. They were partial Jew and partial who knows what. Idol worshipers. And, but anyway, a polluted race of people as far as purest Jews were concerned. So if you were a Jew, your parents were Jews, you had nothing to do with the Samaritans. You were enemies with them for now going on 800 years. We have nothing to do with the Samaritans. And Jesus purposefully, purposing, okay, guys, we're going through Samaria. What are you thinking? Why are we doing this? So he sends his messengers. They go in and they talk to some Samaritan officials, the mayor of the town, who knows what, And the Samaritan uh, leaders obviously inquire and say, uh, what's your purpose? What do you want? Who's this Jesus? Yeah, we've heard about him. Boy, he's creating quite a ruckus. I don't know if we want to be associated with him. By the way, where are you going? Oh, we're just passing through your town, and we're going to go by uh, your mountain, Mount Gerizim, where you worship your false god, and we're going to go down to Jerusalem where the true god is. Can can we stay here for a while in the town where you worship your false god? Uh, Let me think about that. Not You go tell your Jesus, Master, He is not welcome. None of you are." Well, that was the message. So the messengers go back and they tell Jesus, verse 53, well, gave them the message but they did not receive Jesus. They did not welcome Jesus. Why? Because He was traveling toward Jerusalem, the real capital, the real place uh, where God saw true worship. Not the compromised pseudo version of the Samaritans who believed in only partially of some of the Old Testament. So they were incensed. So the messengers come back, uh, the apostles. So whoever those messengers were, okay, Jesus, oh, they're not going to let us go. Why? Well, because uh, we're Jewish. And they got mad and because we're not going to worship at Mount Gerizim. And they, they, they aren't willing to receive you. And so Jesus is like, okay, well, I guess we're not going there. But the apostles, that wasn't their response. They were incensed. Uh, verse 54, James and John. Uh, we, we blame Peter a lot for being uh, bullheaded. And temperamental and having temper tantrums and speaking too much. But James and John were just as bad. Because in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus selects his 12 apostles and he gives them nicknames, uh, Simon will call him Peter the Rock. James and John, uh, let's call them sons of thunder. Well, how did Jesus know they were, had a thunderous character? Well, they were his cousins. He grew up with them. Their mothers were sisters. We had sleepovers together. These guys are bowing urges. They are sons of thunder. Look out. Short fuses, bad temper, temper, vindictive, vengeance, I'm telling, meet out wrath. That's who these guys were. Isn't that amazing how John becomes later known as the disciple of love? That's because of the change God did in his heart. Probably because of some of these lessons Jesus gave. So James and John hear this. about this. So they are incensed. They are furious, these Samaritans. So they said, Lord, do you want us to, cons- to command fire to come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans? And just read that and you're almost aghast. But wow, why in the world would James? Number one, why would James and John think they even had the authority to do that? Because they didn't. Okay, wait, we were just given authority to raise people from the dead. Okay, what's easier? Raising people from the dead? Calling fire down from heaven to kill people? Oh, they're probably about the same. Maybe this authority will work. Let's give it a shot. What do you think, John? Yeah, let's, let's go talk to Jesus. That's what they did. So they probably thought they had authority because they were apostles. They saw amazing things that they didn't even think they could do. Not only that, if you go to 2 Kings chapter 1... In about 850 B.C., you read the story of King Ahaziah, king of Samaria. That's where they are. They're on the brink of going into the land of Samaria. And Ahaziah was a king of Samaria, supposed to be representing Yahweh, but he was a compromised king. And he had an injury. He fell through the roof, and he was laying in his doctor's bed, and he wanted to know if he was going to live beyond this injury. So instead of talking to Yahweh, the true God, he consulted a false god, Baal. He said, Go ask the prophet of Baal, or go ask Baal if I'm going to revive and overcome this injury. And he sent messengers to go find a prophet of Baal. And along the way, they run into Elijah, the prophet of God. And the angel of the Lord tells Elijah, Hey, stop these guys. Uh, The king is going to the wrong place to get information and consultation and help. He's not going to Yahweh, he's going to false gods. Stop it, cut it off at the pass. So Elijah did. He said, Where are you guys going? Is there not a living god among Israel that you have to go consult false gods to get help? You go tell your king the compromiser Ahaziah. He's not going to recover. He's going to die shortly in the bed that he's in. The messengers were like, "Whoa, they didn't know who Elijah was. They go back, they tell the king, and the king's like, "Well, who is this guy saying that? Describe him." Well, he's funny looking. He looks like he's from the desert. He has hairy garments. His hair's a little messed up, and he speaks really loud. Oh, that's Elijah. That's Elijah the prophet. And then uh, the king says, okay, take." he gets uh, a soldier with 50 other men with him and their torches and whatever else. And they go find Elijah. And Elijah's up on a mountain. They call Elijah. Hey, Elijah, come on down. We want to talk to you. And Elijah knows what's up. These guys are going to take him out. And Elijah shouts down and says, if I am of the true God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. (laughs) And then fire came down and consumed all 50 of them on the spot. Oh, just like that. In Samaria. Somebody got word and went back and told the king, man, that Elijah guy, he's vicious. He he consumed all 50 guys on the spot with fire from heaven. And then you know what the king did because he was so wise. Well, do it again. We'll send another fifty guys. This is the living McManus translation. Check it out, Second Kings chapter one. So they go with another group of fifty. He's up on the hill. And the leader cries out again with his 50 soldiers, hey, Elijah, come on down. And Elijah says, if I am from the true, true God, then let fire of heaven come down and consume you. And fire came down from heaven. Boom, 50 more. That's 100. So a messenger apparently saw this, goes back to the king. Uh, king uh, Elijah did it again. Another 50 consumed from heaven. And then the king said, okay, send another 50. So the other 50 go, and then the other guy, he figured it out. And he calls out to Elijah, hey, Elijah up there, uh, I don't want to die. Have mercy on me. And Elijah did. That is a true story. It really happened. This was in Samaria. James and John learned this story, not in Sunday school, but in Saturday school in the synagogues growing up. And they're like, dude, we're in Samaria. We know what happened here historically. Elijah, the prophet, we are apostles. We have supernatural power. These are the Samaritans. They are compromised. Let's take them out. That's why they made the request of Jesus. So this isn't just out of context. So when we read this and think, oh, how despicable these boys, James and J- they're so vindictive and wrong-headed. Well, not totally. They love Jesus. They're protective of Jesus and His reputation. Don't you ever get a little filled with righteous indignation and a little ire or fire in your gut or in your bones when somebody mocks the name of Jesus Christ, your blessed Savior? I do. I do. And I've got to contain myself. Okay, Lord, whoa. They are blaspheming you. What do I do? Then inevitably Romans comes to mind. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Be patient. Wait. And that's what they needed to do. Be patient. Wait. Uh, And Jesus knows what he's doing because he, he basically is telling John and James, uh, read the rest of the verse. There, no, I don't want you to consume them with uh, fire from heaven. Uh, and he, he basically said, "No, don't do that. You know why I came." Luke nineteen ten, came in the world to seek and to save which is lost. I didn't come to condemn. Be patient. We're not done. As a matter of fact, uh, I am going to send you to the Samaritans, by the way, John and James. Or I'm going to send the apostles to the Samaritans someday. The church was born on Pentecost, and the apostles became the leaders of the church. And then Philip was raised up and trained as an associate of the apostles, and he was sent or commissioned by God to go to the Samaritans uh, just a few years later. And Philip preached the gospel, and it says, many Samaritans believed and came to Christ. Jesus knew what he was doing. That's the patience and the love and the mercy of God. So this era, the church era, is the time of patience. It is the time of God's grace. It is the time of mercy. It is the time of God withholding his hand of wrath and judgment. It is the time to get the gospel out. It is the time for believers to infiltrate the world with the good news. To be patient. To uh, give people hope. When we go on our Saturday evangelism, we don't knock on the door and then we give the gospel and they slam the door in your face. And then you you go to the sidewalk and you have a holy huddle. Okay, on the count of three, put your fingers like that. And we will consume that house with fire. No. 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 Time of You planted seeds, you pray, the Spirit of God with his word will work on their hearts and he's going to bring some to salvation. That's why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that now this era, this time, consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. God waits. Why is God waiting so long? Because he's waiting as many to be saved as he once saved. That's the goodness and the grace of God. And this is the important lesson that the apostles need to get ingrained in their head. John, now is the time of grace and mercy. As a matter of fact, you need to give your life, James and John, for the church. You need to give your life for Christ. You don't go around consuming people and killing people. Let's get the record straight. Jesus never killed anybody during his ministry. He never advocated that. He never called for that. It was against everything he stood for. Blessed are the peacemakers. And let's get the record straight as well on the 12 apostles. They never went around starting fights. They never created violence. They never killed anybody. They did just the opposite. They laid down their life for the Savior. Virtually every one of them was murdered for Christ. Put their life on the line. That's the calling of the church. And again, James and John weren't totally off base because there is a day where God will withhold or take away his hand of mercy and he's going to bring judgment. And that's the second coming of Jesus Christ where he will come in a flame of fire to the world and he will judge all of his enemies. Time is up. But he knows when that perfect timing is. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 11, and we did this when we were looking at Revelation, the irony is John the Apostle is writing the book of Revelation uh, probably 50, 60 years after this incident where he, he wanted to call fire from heaven. Two guys wanting to call fire from heaven to consume God's enemies. Sixty years later, John's in prison on an island, isolated by himself. The Spirit of God has given him information. And then he's he's writing down Revelation chapter 11. And then God says, in the future, at the end of the age, I will have my two witnesses, John. They will be my two lampstands. And they will be in the Middle East. And they will uh, have a ministry for three and a half years. And God will give them supernatural power. And one of the things they'll be able to do, John, is to call down the fire of God from heaven to consume God's enemies. Can you imagine what John was thinking? And he's writing that down. Man, how cool is this? I missed the boat. Man, I wish I was these guys. Maybe me and uh, my brother James will come back reincarnate. Maybe we're the two witnesses. Everybody's saying it's Elijah and Moses. Man, I want it to be me, James and John. (laughs) Who knows what John was thinking? But that day is coming. And with that, knowing the terror of the Lord, we go out and we persuade men to embrace Christ. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day and the privilege we have to, to worship you to be with the Saints to study your word together and I do pray that you would allow uh, your people and all that hear the word taught and preached that through your Holy Spirit you would give them discerning minds and hearts to vet out that which is not true to your word and what is the living word of God sinks into our ears, into our mind, into our heart, into our our conscience, informs our worldview, informs our very life, so that we can walk in obedience to you and giving you glory every step of the way as a living sacrifice that you're pleased with. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.